sound so fair. My noble partner you greet with present grace and great prediction, of noble having and of royal hope, that he seems wrapped withal. To me you speak not. If you can look into the sands of time and say which grain will grow and which will not, speak then to me, who neither <laughs> beg nor fear your favors nor your hate. Hail. Hail. Lesser than Macbeth and greater. Not so happy, yet much happier. <laughs> thou shalt get kings, though thou be none. So hail, Macbeth <laughs> and Banquo. Banquo <laughs> imperfect speakers. Tell me more. By Sinel's death, I am fame of Glorms. But how of Cawdor? The fame of Cawdor lives, a properest gentleman. And to be king stands not within the prospect of belief. Me more than to be Cawdor. Say from whence you owe this strange intelligence. Or why upon this blast heat you stop our way with such prophetic greeting? Speak. I, I charge you. <laughs> Hello, listeners. You're tuning into the Bardcast Weekly with Will Kemp's players. You just heard Act 1, Scene 3 of Macbeth with Sandra Boynton, Michael Sincora, and Ragliacci as the witches. 
Shane Suspenkowski as Macbeth, and me as Banquo. Your hosts, as always, are myself, Rob Johnson, Phil Beatty. Hello. And Shay Fitzgerald. Hi. Sandra Boynton and Rad Liachi are with us this week in conversation. Hi. Let's jam. And our spotlight artist this week is Michael Lake. Hey. Each week, we'll bring you some excerpts of Shakespeare scenes, followed by a lively discussion with some of our players on dramatic themes, relevance of work, and how we take stuff to performance as an original practices worker-owned cooperative. Mike Lake, you're our special guest today. So tell us a little bit about your beginnings in Shakespeare performance and the original practices technique. Okay, well, um... I guess at the risk of beating a dead horse, <laughs> my my origins in in the uh, world of original practice uh, will uh, also start at Schenectady County Community College with Sandra Boynton. Um, however, my first exposure to Shakespeare um, is uh, is grounded in high school, uh, like most of us. Um, we read in ninth grade. Uh, both Romeo and Juliet and Caesar, um, which I, I I know is is rare for most uh, people. Um, at that point in your life, you're usually um, kind of forced to just pick one and then read it in a way that <clears throat> makes you realize later in life that maybe not learning it at all would have been better. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> uh, but no, um, Schenectady High School, uh, um, the, uh, the curriculum there was pretty expansive. Um, and, uh, we got some pretty good exposure, uh, to, uh, to some things, um, and, and early, early modern theater, uh, would be one of those things. And yeah, and so we we did do the thing where you know everybody gets a part and you read it out loud and um, and you you know you try to analyze and 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 all that. Um, my first time ever being uh, a, involved in design in in shape the Shakespearean world would also be in high school as a scenic painter uh, for Hamlet. Um, which was hey yo yes, which you heard a little bit about in uh, in uh, an episode earlier this season, um, and it kind of bleeds right into what we're going to talk about today uh, because it was set in an alternate time and space, um, and uh, so that was really interesting <clears throat> as someone that had not not yet been exposed to that concept of setting Shakespeare. In, in in other times that may thematically um, uh, support the text um, in un, in you know unforeseen or, or maybe unique ways well we'll say um, so yeah and then uh, original practice um, you know uh, trips in college down to uh, the American Shakespeare Center um, where a lot of us, uh, draw our inspiration for um, the way in which we uh, approach the work um, and uh, also living in Virginia um, <clears throat> as a, in, in my 20s um, right in town gave me some exposure to both the ASC company and working with students in the uh, MLIT and MFA program at Mary Baldwin College for uh, Shakespeare um, in uh, both literature and performance, uh, though I did not attend that program. Um, uh, yeah, so I guess that's that's where it all started. So with all of that in context, what brought you to the concept of a Macbeth in a post-apocalyptic world? Uh, well, honestly, at first, it started as a joke. Um, we were in discussion uh, in uh, just kind of uh, uh, in rehearsals um, last season, I believe it was, um, kind of tooling around with the idea of interesting settings for Shakespeare's work. And um, it kind of came up... Uh, out of actually a necessity, uh, a practical necessity that 
broadswords were expensive and we didn't have them. <laughs> um, yeah, that's true. And you know, it, which would be required, set in medieval, medieval Scotland. <laughs> exactly. So we thought, we thought, like, oh, it'd be really cool if we could just get some garbage, essentially, and and create some really wild costumes and interesting weaponry, and it kind of led to post-apocalyptic Macbeth. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but what's what's gotten me thinking about it actually really seriously is the state of things uh, from a from a I guess a more liberal perspective <laughs> in our country right now um, and and how leadership is a pivotal aspect to um, uh, addressing any uh, crisis. And how the way our leaders behave um, can and will directly inform the course of history. And I guess a little bit throughout this COVID pandemic that we're experiencing, um, you could say that leadership is wanting. <laughs> and, Perhaps, yes, and, indeed. And the actions and the actions of one's own personal um, one's own personal uh, endeavors and and goals can be detrimental to society uh so setting setting macbeth um in that world of kind of decay and and uh social discord i think um i think in my humble opinion uh works and is pretty poignant yeah and well what's interesting about it to me and one of the reasons why i wanted to make sure that this concept this episode got on our schedule this season is because thematically I believe it's true that Macbeth is one of the plays that Shakespeare would have written during a particularly high insurgence of, of plague is that right yeah most of Shakespeare's life actually there was um, there oh was yeah plague. of course there most was plague on and off yeah I do remember reading yeah. somewhere I mean obviously I'm doing a terrible job of citing any sources right now um, I do remember seeing some reference to Macbeth having been written in a similar stretch of time to today, um, in which some kind of quarantine sure, sure. may have been oppose, imposed. Um, I don't know about the historical specifics yeah, and, of that, but it would definitely be interesting to look into. So even that theoretical connection is something that, you know, brought the idea kind of to mind for me. Yeah. And and, his, and if you think about it, um, Shakespeare, none of none of Shakespeare's plays as far as I know, our wholesale, um, our wholesale creations of Shakespeare's own mind, um, they all kind of come from somewhere. And, and he was retooling right. and repurposing these old, old stories to make comments about the world. In exactly. And, uh, and yeah, so, so I think in keeping with that tradition, um, resetting his pieces in in my understanding of the work and in my in my dedication to the work um makes sense to me uh it makes sense to to make these things relevant in a way that makes a statement about what's happening in your world or at least you know for some artists um that that's that's a that's a driving force right. behind their work yeah 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 and and this particular piece is bizarre or, or strangely relevant in the sense that we're not only dealing with illness, we're dealing with political insecurity in that James is Scottish and sitting on the English throne. He is not secure in his own power. And, and James was assaulted very, very... There was the gunpowder plot, the Guy Fawkes Revolution. Yes, right, right, right. Where oh, they yeah. tried to blow up the parliament about a year before this thing seems to have taken the stage. So we're talking oh, about a really wow. politically unstable time. Yeah. In a, right. Right during plague, so that there are not the same parallels, but there are interesting ones of instability on all levels. Right, exactly. What was going on all last year, right here in our world? Uh, we had impeachment here. Sure. 
you know, and and now, like, yeah, <clears throat> I mean, you it it could be understood that the way the president is now behaving, especially toward blue states, uh, is is very much in in is a revenge plot. Is you know, it's it's him, uh, it's his victory lap, and he instead of. Uh, in this time, bringing us together, you know, um, he's he's kind of kind of tearing us apart. Yeah. <laughs> well, even more, if you can go one step farther, James the first or James the sixth of Scotland, same guy, was a noted publisher and writer in the area of demonology, the study of demons right. and witches. Part of the reason for that was that he believed that he was being persecuted by witches and was involved in witch trials and witch hunts. Oh, my goodness. For real. So I'm just throwing that in. <laughs> and, and to kind of get into a little theology a little bit, um, uh, this this also um, explains uh, a lot about uh, the religious texts that were coming out of that era um you know uh really kind of hammering the point the fine point of of witchcraft and and how um uh largely um these otherized social classes uh were were viewed as not only different but evil they were if they were going against societal norm they were unnatural um not just different and that that is very relevant right now as well uh and really has been throughout time right like there's never a time in human history where if you're different people oh, just God, cool yeah. that on mass you know right especially <laughs> right. spiritually different i mean look at the history of my jewish people <laughs> like <laughs> There's throughout the ages people who are willing to pinpoint and and um, demolish uh, communities and populations based on difference in belief. So, Mike, I have a question for you, actually, from so just touching on on your your designer um, experience. So we've heard a little bit from you before as an actor. You were in our Midsummer episode speaking to that quite a bit. Um, and came back for us again the next week as Benedict, and you and I got to perform together, so that was fun. Um, my my, so I guess my my following question is that I would really love to touch more on your work specifically in design and the way that you approach thematic content. Um, first of all, like what what you do as a designer, because I would love to hear that, and and how you might take a show like this and begin conceptualizing. Um, how to put together the pieces and create a story. Sure. Uh, yeah, I guess I guess to touch on that, I'll use a little bit of what we're talking about today, but also my most recent endeavor, which would be Mitzvah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so first, the first step really, and I guess this this kind of brings you into the realm of, of production design or artistic design uh, for a production. Um, a lot of time uh, there's there sometimes is a delineation between a designer and like a material designer and a production designer. Um, so, and then so, and then other times you can be the production designer as well as the director. Um, a lot of times directors will come to a piece. Uh, usually, um, actually, I would say uh, it isn't uncommon for a director to have a very specific visual aesthetic in mind um uh and but then sometimes um that's not the case so in in this in this instance with Macbeth uh I'm kind of serving for this episode as both the director and the the design um uh right right so in other circumstances yeah this this would kind of be a conversation in in the real world but for this yeah sure this would be in the real world yeah this would be a conversation so I would sit down with a director or a producer and basically um get the uh the direction that 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 person wants to go into uh so for midsummer 
um, our friend Ragliacci uh, directed, and um, he had a very specific vision for the themes that he wanted to address and the um, the relationships that he wanted to create on stage. Um, and he and I collaborated on the visual aesthetics and um, it was very important for him to make clear uh, distinctions between the worlds that these characters came from. Um, so in doing that, we decided to go a little off the wall <laughs> and um, take three very clear um, vehicles to, to deliver the, the work. So we had the traditional Grecian uh, aesthetic for our Greek heroes. Um, the, you know, uh, I, and, and the reason why I, I, I ultimately uh, landed on that is because you had these big personalities of Theseus and Hippolyta and the, the very Grecian um, statuesque, uh, yeah themes that come along statuesque, right, that come along with those characters and, and I really wanted to let that ring true. I really wanted to let that um, be not only present in what you were seeing on the stage, but, but, and what you were hearing. Um, and then what we did for the, uh, the mechanicals is we, um, we made them Elizabethan type laborers, um, with the idea that this was a world in which all of these cultures exist at the same time. Um, and, and, and that's also another thing that you'll see in a lot of Shakespearean resettings <laughs> is kind of a timeless uh, setting where, where there will be some modern clothing with some sometimes, you know, uh, ex exaggerated Grecian or medieval armor type uh, decisions being made to kind of give you a layered texture um to what you're seeing on stage and then our fairies were very otherworldly they were very natural um but they were also very um spiritual um so we we folded a lot of that into into the fairies without rehashing you know that episode from a design standpoint and for me um it's it's all about uh kind of getting into theme and also, um, you know, what looks pretty, what what makes sense in the text, but also um, what's nice to look at, because ultimately, you know, we're here to entertain. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the cool things about Kemp's that I just wanted to clarify for our audience is, is that, um, Mike, your job in the company, well, one of your one of your titles is as production manager. So um, that can mean a lot of different things. Um you know, aside from the technical definition of production manager, which he also, you know, does. But in the context of, of Will Kemp's players, um, although, you know, then there are also Sandy and I who uh, work predominantly as, you know, Kemp's uh, more or less residential costume designers, there there is more flexibility in where that labor gets divided um, in the context of occasionally like shows like Midsummer, wherein you were overseeing more of the thematic design look for the show across the board as it, you know, came to all of the different elements and, and Sandy and I were, um, you know, sort of co-designing with you as it came to the costume specifically. But then you also were overseeing, um, you know, uh, construction of uh, set pieces and props and, and all of that kind of thing to kind of maintain this aesthetic point of view. So um, in some companies, there's more of a traditional very exacting breakdown of this person does this very specific job and this person does a very specific job and a lot of times with Kemp's because of the fact that um, we are a small group of people to begin with and then also are a very collaborative company by nature um, we do tend to although we have those positions yeah, yeah, there absolutely. is fluidity and, um, between them Sandy and Rags uh, also um, can attest to wearing the many hats because uh, not because part of the function of our company is is that um, we all share the workload um, but we do have people that are dedicated 
to management. Um, so yeah, it can, it can be very interesting to be sitting in a meeting and be really excited about a concept or an idea that it's being talked about around the table and then being like, oh wait, I have to wear my production manager hat right now. So hold on. Okay, well, what does that mean logistically in terms of scheduling material production? In terms of, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, making sure that we get props made and in the hands of the actors in enough time to make everything work for opening um and then you know how how can i be sure that if i have a costuming crisis during a show um you know that sandy will be there which she always is to just <laughs> stitch away at something <laughs> um you know and and that's that's a that's one of the challenging parts of working with the company yeah well yeah for me it's really interesting because predominantly I wind up wearing yeah. the hat of costume design or wardrobe work and mm -hmm. or both at the same time and then also performance which is an interesting marriage because of the fact that I so I definitely see the distinction of wearing two different hats at different times but then sometimes I find myself wearing both of the hats at once and that's when it can get really hairy when I'm speaking both from the perspective of an actor and a costume designer at the same time and I'm like okay I'm covering a lot of ground here but like this is what has to especially because of the fact that I'm often costuming myself sure. like I'm designing for myself so therefore I may have a specific vision um, so, yeah, I mean, Mike, especially with you, it's always interesting getting to do this stuff with you because when we get to perform together, we're performing together as actors in one capacity, and then we, like, step aside and we're, like, talking <laughs> from a costume design and production manager perspective. And so it's just this really funny sense about the kinds of, honestly, very deep relationships that we develop as members of Kemp's, and we have to learn how to be really specific and clear and good about making sure that we know what we're doing when and what authority we're holding when, and it's definitely difficult. But I think there are a lot of advantages that come with it. What I think is really interesting with these multi-hats is that very often the actors actually know how to use a costume. Yes, yes! They find ways to exploit what they're given or ask for what they need so that the costume is part of the expression of character, which is part of the expression of text. Exactly. And, and things happen because opportunities open up because we all think with our eyes and our ears and our hearts and minds simultaneously. And things happen because of those cross relationships. Yes, exactly. All the time. The reason it's like people even if say someone is not super super invested in our costume production, they're still close enough to it happening that people wind up developing very personal relationships to things like costumes and props and like it wholly can inform and um uh and you know translate aspects of a character that, you know, many actors, they would only really get their costume, you know, a week, a week as, you know, during tech week or maybe even a little bit before that to start working with bits and pieces of it. It's I feel very much privileged many occasions as an actor that I am building my character as I'm frequently the one building what I'm wearing. So I have it like being able to collaborate yeah. between in my own world. I wind up having these really, really fulfilling experiences wherein I'm able to utilize the things that are on my body and in my hands in this like really transformative way. And it's just phenomenal. And that goes for anything like that goes for costuming, that goes for the set pieces and the, you know, the pieces of furniture that we're living around that goes for the props as well. Like these incredible props that like mostly we've got Phil doing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's this it's a great experience, honestly, to be in such a company where you can actually talk with a costume designer before the show even starts and go, okay, what do you think this pick character would wear? Oh, let's let's look at these colors, or look at this, or I think they this or that, or the same thing. You know, when I people approach me for prop stuff, it's like, what you know, why do you think the letter needs to be this size, or what you know, is there a special tool that you think your character needs? Like, why is it this color? You know. 
all things that are really yeah, great absolutely. in a collaborative setting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. really help the actor. So yeah, I guess to bring this all back around to Macbeth, um, Mike, why don't you talk to us a little bit about what you kind of see um, as as happening in, yeah. in your concept? Yeah. We heard the uh, the first appearance of the weird sisters, the witches, um, and their their first encounter with uh, Banquo and Macbeth, uh, victorious uh, from battle, <laughs> on their way, on their way uh, to force, um, and uh, yeah. So I think what um, <clears throat> what you can't see <laughs> uh, in that scene, yeah. um, but I think what translates into this idea of 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 kind of collapse. Uh, is is an example of the collapse of a social structure. So <clears throat> you have in this scene the sisters, and they they are very elaborate. Uh, the first first witch is elaborately explaining the idea she's the the punishment that she's going to inflict on on uh, an, an otherwise probably perfectly fine. <laughs> woman of means and um uh, otherwise very, fine <laughs> for a minor slight uh and i think that a lot of us can feel like we've been dealt a pretty rough hand um because of things that are completely outside of our control and i think one of the themes within shakespeare is wealthy and high uh high ranking or well-off individuals losing their control and Macbeth has no control in this scene and he spends a lot of the play trying to regain control and to me that kind of rings parallel to what we are seeing in today's a lot of today's um, literature a lot of today's television a lot of today's movies is these worlds of social decay that are wrought on by <clears throat> some cataclysmic event aliens zombies I- illness uh we we see these stories that show um you know our heroes in a way uh, kind of battling against these forces but in this play our heroes are these forces and so i think the supernatural element to these witches kind of can usher us into a world where there are, these powerful men are only as powerful as their superstitions, right? Or their beliefs. And mm-hmm. and part of the complexity of this play is did the witches were they prophesial or was this a self-fulfilling prophecy? Did this happen because it was placed into Macbeth's mind that it will happen? I think that's a theme through a lot of Shakespeare's plays. Uh, Hamlet. Uh, does Hamlet go insane and exact revenge as a result of being told by a ghost to do it? Or was it that he just, was he already mentally ill? You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I think with Macbeth, um, setting it in a world that's already collapsed kind of sets these characters into a position of needing to retain their control in a world in which they have none. Exactly. And I think that's 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 that is so much the case for when politicians really look their most narcissistic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, if you if you want to think about Shakespeare's time times again, we are two years before the publication of Galileo's seminal work about the moons of Jupiter. We are in that spot where science and tradition are coming up against each other, and we are seeing the end of the medieval world and going into the modern world. A time when information is overwhelming people. Yeah, that's really (laughs) quite a bit nail on the head there i mean one book owning one book if you're a person of of very little means is a big deal for these people but they could 
It was the beginning of cheap publications. They could own books. Yeah. Wow. The world is shifting out from underneath everybody's feet right now, right then. Right, and I, I don't want to put words into Mike's mouth, but it's the same thing in this post-apocalyptic situation where, you know, there's only a couple books left and someone finds it, so now, oh, they're a little bit smarter. They're a little mm-hmm. bit, you know, richer, or they're a little bit... Exactly. You know, Macbeth, bigger. so thematically what we're saying is that thematically Macbeth is about a world in which there is shifting transition and leadership and knowledge and the context of that world is not necessarily as significant as those things existing in it. So whether you choose to observe Macbeth from a standpoint of when Shakespeare wrote it or from a standpoint of uh, from today through today's eyes or from a standpoint of how might we present this in a post-apocalyptic design fashion, the through line that I'm hearing is those sure, ideas. Sure. And then bringing it back to our piece with, with Lady M herself, how I'm I'm very attracted to the themes of <clears throat> how do how do women in a scenario where <clears throat> that doesn't that I don't that I don't see as one to one if you say set Macbeth in the current timeline like in today like how do these how do these women that are that are attached to powerful men um, advance themselves in light of I, there is a little bit more fluidity there um, although we have not come as far as we would like in in terms of uh, of feminism today um, I'm, I'm very attracted mm-hmm. to again these uh, there's a lot of themes in in current lit and, and movies and entertainment where you have women that have to be strong in situations where <clears throat> their physical capability uh, or um, uh, their uh, in, in relation to a in, in relation to a man they they are expected to behave a certain way and so you have Lady Macbeth priming herself getting ready to 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 embark on this personal quest of her own to solidify her place in the world through her husband and so in a post-apocalyptic world where assumably <laughs> um, the darker and and more sinister aspects of humanity will will likely rear their its head and, and creep back into power structure how will a woman be secure in a world without security and I think ensuring that yeah. her her male counterpart um, is at the top of the food chain is the way that she does that and and I <clears throat> and I very much think that this play could very easily uh, be seen as um can very easily be seen as an example of women being maybe smarter than men, but maybe not better. Maybe in a point of of human uh, a human um, I guess desperation, you know, um, they're able to be just as as underhanded in in what you know, and what their goals are, um, even though it could be in an, in, in an act of self-preservation, which is, I think, the difference between Lady M and, and, and Macbeth is that she is acting out of necessity where he seems to be acting out of pride. Mm. Yeah. I think it's critical what the relationship between them in age is. I've seen this played with a 20 years younger Lady Macbeth. I've seen it played with a 20 years older Lady Macbeth. And I've seen them be age similar. And that really makes a difference whether Lady Macbeth is almost a perverse mother or almost a perverse daughter or a conspirator 
And those are three different plays, and they all can be done with this text. Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. I think, Mike, too, along with what you were saying, I, like, I feel like it almost frames... It does a really good job framing the question, like, is there a quote-unquote better between, you know, genders or whatever? Like, if we are examining people from equal footing, someone can, yes, be smarter and have more, you know, um, intellectual or, you know, deceptive capabilities... Um, but they can also use those to the ends of being an incredibly harmful person. Sure. And it just happens in the way that their particular position in society allows them to dictate. So women by nature look different when they're, you know, following their nastier sides, but that's just because women have been positioned different in society. So I feel like there is an interesting question that this play you know, kind of prods at a little bit about how our position in society influences the way we try to take advantage of things and vice versa. Absolutely. And and I think the witches being a good example of of what real power is, of what real real freedom looks like, um, versus what we see from other women in the play, even just not Lady Macbeth. I mean think about uh, oh geez, think about Lady Mac, uh, uh, Macduff, right? Like, yeah, brutally murdered her children, brutally murdered, and merely for her connection to a powerful man, you know, like, and exactly. so like, exactly, and and the the total lack of of autonomy in that situation, and maybe maybe Lady Macbeth's kind of cold steely nature comes from uh, you know a long made vow to never be that to never be you know what I mean even if even if she can't have power true power on her own she will never be that and so again there are no villains here right it's, it's positioning positioning herself in opposition to other women so so how do you see your witches what do your witches look like if they're if they are to to in this thematic content context if they are the the pivotal expression of what actual freedom sure. looks like what are they in sure. a post-apocalyptic uh, setting i'd like to think that so so in this world um we're, we're obviously operating from from a belief that um magic is real that uh you know we're, we're not taking the heady uh approach of um you know, trying to analyze whether or not um, uh, the witches are actually magical. They're magical. Just, just we're putting it out there. Um, and mm-hmm. and again, in the time, I think that would have been the play. Um, you know, uh, mm-hmm. this was very real for for people of this time. Um, you know, there are there are aspects to the writing of these characters that reference what people believed witches were capable of. The, the, the first witch says she's going to sail in a sieve, which is she would literally, because of her magic ability, be able to jump into a metal sieve used for separating liquids from solids or smaller particulate from larger particulate. So it's got a bunch of holes in it. She would be able to sail in the ocean because of her, her ability of magic to, to float in this sieve. So, and then, you know, transforming into a tailless rat because human forms have no, um, have no corresponding body part to a rat's tail. These are all beliefs that they had. If you saw a rat without a tail, chances are it's a witch in disguise. So, um, we're, we're, we're gonna, we're retaining, we're retaining that aspect to the mythology, right? So in my world, before you go any further, I like that because regardless of, you know, what we have established, you know, in the conversation of the witches themselves, that's such kind of like a fabulous way of of them reclaiming stereotypes, (laughs) which is in in essence like an expression of that kind of idea of freedom. 
Like, that's, like, super heady. But, you know, at the same time, it's definitely this idea of, like, no, those are our words, you know? Like, that's just, that's really fun to me. Like, because it's like, oh, yeah, I do sail in a sieve. <laughs> like, you don't come at me for it. Like, yeah, so there's there's some interesting, there's just, I, you know, it just, it made, made me laugh because of the fact that there is some kind of direct connection to what you were saying in terms of them being, you know, expression of, of you know, freedom yeah. and self, like, self-reclamation yeah, and, 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 and all that. This isn't new for them. They've been witches since before the fall. You know what I mean? So, so, yeah, so exactly. in all of this, they've got the least to lose. They're already rejected by society. They're already living on the outsides, the fringes. So these, these witches are, witch, they're very much practicing witchcraft. That's what's happening. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, so, so. They're the most, they're the least bothered by the fact that everything has kind of come to the point that it's come to. I'd love to hear from Rags, who is unfortunately coming to us from the Witch's Void. <laughs> in, in keeping with all of these themes as the sound designer, not just for this episode, but also the music designer in general for all of Okan's player, um, what challenges does it pose to realize these themes and these ideas into a, uh, a concrete piece? Mm, it's interesting that you use the word <laughs> concrete, uh, because that immediately brings me to think about rebar. <laughs> rebar witches. <laughs> well, well, we can we can definitely get into that. I mean, the understanding that sound effects and and what we constitute as music can really come from the environment. And this would be a fun challenge in a post-apocalyptic world, in that you would have this like broken glass crunching under your feet. Um, you know, potentially the buildings or other structures, you know, falling apart, leaning, groaning, and the notion of sound coming from things like metal, from stone, from like nets, swampy ponds, or even blood. Um, you've got this idea that the environment, the physical environment that you create actually offers a whole pool of sound opportunity to draw from. And something like post-apocalyptic big bath, um, you know, you can use the sound in a way that also evoke a lot of the feelings that we have when we hear that word post-apocalyptic. Um, so ideas of disaster, of despair, of darkness, of also to contrast you know, uh, things coming through the cracks, life going on despite it all, uh, you know, terror and joy, and finding those musical instruments or with found objects is uh, is where I would probably go with this. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think that uh, that 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 brings a lot of perspective into how to kind of sound design a very apocalypse. Two two <laughs> things two things came to mind. Uh, one, when you talked about um, you know nature going on despite it all the forest coming to Dunsinane just like immediately mm. like ah, okay now I kind of see somewhat where it's situated why that is thematically interesting in that context and then also just a broken wheezing sad bagpipe <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah the idea of using, using things that are broken anyway where there are no ideal conditions in a you know, post-apocalyptic setting and and you could translate that musically. Um, yeah, that gives me an idea to what would happen if we had a bunch of broken instruments that we play and found ways to play them and make music out of them. Kind of despite the fact that their use uh, in an ideal sense is not Or, on. yeah, exactly, taking broken instruments and refashioning them to be new varieties of instruments. Like, the body of a broken fun. guitar it becomes a drum. You know, like, all different varieties of things. I love that there's an amazing little sound component to that, and there's also this showmanship component of if you were on stage wielding these repurposed instruments, how how it would interestingly signify everything you're talking about. Yeah, it reminds me of the doctored instruments that they use in Hades well, Town. Right, like, or at least they did in the uh, initial first, re like the first recording album of it. Visually, I'm seeing like the witches draped, maybe one of the witches is draped in like old soda cans that are filled with her various uh, spell ingredients or, you know, glass bottles or, you know what I mean? So yes. like it's, they mm -hmm. even just by the mere movement of them 
are making noise and like creating that 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 ambiance of 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 sound that accompanies their you know their every their every move um you know uh, a, a necklace uh you know made from i don't know bottle caps or you know like it is kind of strange strange findings oh, yes. they've come across in, in in picking through you know the the detritus you know of a fallen world you know and kind of like and yeah then, the things that they've been able they, the things that they have been able to repurpose and reclaim and free for their Absolutely. own new uses yeah i mean even the the weapons whatever the weapons would end up being if they're sitting well, in I'd a love certain to, i'd love know, to get into like yeah, absolutely. fights musical too. so that the sounds pipes make when they hit each other or hit people you know are 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 incorporated in a way that's rhythmic or uh you know kind of really accentuates the entire fight scene in and of itself i think one of the best sound effects to hear like during a fight is like the sounds that swords make when they hit each other you know what i mean so like so so kind of yeah that like clang sure, clang sure, clang clang how, clang like yeah exactly how, that just like sounds so it's not inform the, <laughs> the action you know so like if you hear two you know big broad swords coming together versus hearing the foil foils come together you know how how that informs uh the fight in and of Mm -hmm. itself and so just hearing like a crunch of like the i don't know the 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 cement left on remnant on a rebar pipe you know kind of like that adds to the brutality of it all if it's just these various uh, you know uh, yeah exactly that i mean that ties all into rags's idea that the soundscape of this kind of environment is itself also the landscape absolutely i hate to be a stick in the mud uh but we have almost reached the end for our episode uh, i'm gonna give us one last whip through all of our friends present uh for a final couple of sentences uh, a farewell to our audience member and then we're gonna wrap it up with bill uh, I would love to start, though, with a farewell from our uh, our featured artist, Mike Lay. Oh, thank you, Rob. <laughs> uh, yeah, so so yeah, I hope that gives like a little bit of a window into the world of artistic design or production management or whatever we were going to decide the actual role of which I feel we were drawing from <laughs> and um, also kind of a little bit of a, a window into how Will Kemp's approaches these decisions and how we really try to uh, capture uh, the thematic essence of, of these works. Um, and we put a lot of thought into placing these, these shows into different eras uh, when we decide to take that route. Um, our, our, our season for this summer that has seemed to be uh, put on, on, on ice <laughs> um, was, was also uh, going to include yeah. a resetting uh. of, of one of Shakespeare's plays, uh, Much Ado. So, you know, we, we, do, we do take it very, just as seriously as uh, any other decision that we make from show selection to, you know, um, y- you know, the, uh, the people that we're casting in mm-hmm. what roles, it's, it's all, it's all to serve the work. And I think it's really important that, um, in making these pieces relevant, um, that we take every very special care of, of how we present what we're doing to our audience, because if we were in the audience, and we saw Macbeth set in a post a post apocalyptic setting. You're damn sure we'd want to know <laughs> that there was a reason, and that and that it really that it really comes across. And I mean, nobody, you know, most people aren't going to sit in our shows and analyze every little piece of it. But I just, I, I for one, uh, would love for 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 when that time comes to have have a, a good answer <laughs> for why for uh-huh. why we we think of things the way we do and then and then again to serve the work conveying our our creative message and then also the playwright's intended message um through every aspect of design and and performance thank you very much mike 
Um, Sandy, do you have any final thoughts to share with our lovely listeners now? Well, uh, thank you all for, for sticking with us this evening. I think it's important to realize that every element of a theatrical production tells the same story. And so um, the choice of a sword handle is there because it's telling the story. The choice of weapons are there to tell a story. Even if we don't have battle uniforms, we choose colors or shapes for, for the people on different sides of an argument. So they will appear to be a coherent, they will appear to be coherent in themselves and in opposition to each other so they can tell the story. It's always about telling the story. And good night, folks. Mm-hmm. Amen. <laughs> Thank you again, Sandy. Uh, that brings me around to Rags. Please, give us your final thoughts. Well, to pick up what Sandy was putting down, um, the idea that storytelling pervades all thematic elements of the theater means that the theme you choose, the story that you're trying to tell, is, is crucially important in terms of the effect that you want it to have as well. And so in thinking about a post-apocalyptic impact, but looking around at our current state of affairs can often also feel kind of post-apocalyptic. And that it makes me question what our audience would take from this. You know, especially considering that Macbeth is such a story of, of power and the struggle therein, and violence and revenge and this belief in magic. Um, what would we be leaving our audience with and how would we take that into their next day? or even into their dream that very night. Um, and the last thing is that I have this great t-shirt idea <laughs> when we do this. And if you fucking steal it out there, we will know. We'll find you. And, and the sisters, the sisters will get you. Um, and keep, keep Shakespeare weird. W-Y-R-D. Yes. Oh, nice. Right? I love it. Take that off. Uh, the D&D player in me is just seeing the designs right now. Oh, <laughs> the t-shirt designer in me excellent. is just seeing the designs right now. <laughs> Yet another Rob, hat. It sounds like you and Mike need to have a meeting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mike, All the hats. Another one. <laughs> oh, man. Mm. Needless to say, thank you all so much for listening. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Jay, Phil, and Rob, as always, for putting this together. Mike Lake for your presence and peace of mind. And Sandy, for you just being an amazing rock that is so full of knowledge and wisdom and joy. And thank you, Rags, for uh, uh, choosing to come on with us today and have a wonderful chat. Uh, Shay, do you have any final thoughts? I love y'all. I I love getting to talk about Shakespeare every week with, you know, this, you know, shifting and shuffling group of ever-changing fantastic characters um, who are a great part of my life. And um, I even love just brainstorming ideas like this because, you know, based on what we've been talking about regarding storytelling... To me, it's just such a necessary human compulsion. There aren't humans without stories. That's just not a thing that has ever existed, I don't think. Um, And so the way in which we do it is such a mark of who we are. And I think finding a group of people with whom you can tell stories in the same way with the same priority is exactly what most storytellers want in the world out there so i am just ever grateful to have that in my life and i am super proud to be able to share it with our audience so hopefully they can feel like they're a little bit a part of that discussion too and and they can uh you know get some inspiration from the places where we're coming from or even you know some new stuff too I, I just I hope that our listeners will continue to explore in the ways that we are able to um, and that this can uh, be, you know, uh, something interesting for them in that regard. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, that brings me around to uh, Phil. Before I toss it to you for the goodbye, I'm just going to give a quick thank you. Yes, you too, to, Rob. <laughs> um, 
uh, all of our players who rags actually has hit almost everyone in the chat um, <laughs> uh, but also included were uh, the players um, from the performances Mike Sikora uh, Shane Sestankowski and a huge thanks to Phil who's pulling double duty today both as a uh, as a host and on the uh, the players end so Phil please give us your final thoughts <laughs> Um, just again, thank you all for being here. I love doing this. I, I wish this was a job because this would be the best job ever to just talk to your friends and just have a really great time creating wonderful ideas that could potentially in the future lead to productions. And it's, it's just, it's great having so many people rotating in and out every week with so many different unique ideas to grow not only our fans but our own artistic adventures as well so thank you all <laughs> tune in next week for all new conversation and content you can also visit our website at wilkempsplayers.com shoot us an email at weeklybardcast at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Will Kemp's Players. We'll be back soon. For tonight, the fool doth think he is wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool. Good night. <laughs>